the Schubert Theater in New York City, American Airlines presents the 1967 Tony Awards for excellence in achievement in the Broadway theater. Hello, and welcome to My Little Tonys, a podcast where year by year we go through the Tony Awards ceremonies and talk about the highlights and perhaps the lowlights. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. And uh, here we go. We're going to start with 1967, which was the first nationally broadcast Tonys. Some of the years before that had been broadcast on TV or radio, but not nationally. And it was broadcast on Sunday, March 26, 1967. Sponsored by American Airlines. I know. We can get into that (laughs) because I think that's very interesting that they were the ones who, who really, like, brought... Broadway into everyone's homes. Um, yeah, well, it was also kind of interesting um, because I feel like throughout the ceremony there was kind of this discussion of how Broadway fed Hollywood, and whenever a movie star um, came out to present an award, there was some kind of um, kind of nod to the fact that they were in the place that they shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, and that's definitely something that is that continues to be kind of like a hot button topic in Broadway now. Like there was that one year where there was kind of a backlash to like what people saw as, you know, movie stars getting being overrepresented even though like their performances weren't necessarily Tony worthy, just they were just trying to acknowledge the fact that like they sell the tickets. So the so in 1967, the ratings were were pretty high. They, it was in 8.4 million homes. They don't have numbers for how many people actually watched that, but that translates to about 15 million people. And it had a 28 share, which means about 30% of people who had their TVs on at the time were watching the Tonys. That's kind of amazing to uh, think about. Right? I'm sure that contemporary numbers are nowhere near that. No, they're very low now. I guess... By 1967, we're kind of at the end of the era where, you know, American popular music is really being fed to the people through, um, you know, what we now call show tunes. That was actually something I was thinking about watching this because it's hosted by Mary Martin and Robert Preston, who are two, like, golden age stars, but they're kind of at the end of their careers. And, like, this was also a year where you had Ethel Merman doing, like, an Annie Get Your Gun revival, but she was, like, 60, which is you know, back in those days was like a million. So you're really like at the end of that golden era of Broadway from like the 40s to the 60s and not yet in sort of the like Sondheim dominated era in the 70s where things were getting like a little bit more experimental. Yeah. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting time. Yeah, yeah, this is an interesting time. And also I think talking about innovation, um, you know, this season that we're going to be talking about on this episode was um, arguably one of the most innovative, or one of the most innovative shows um, premiered this season, um, and it swept the Best Musical Award. I did I, not, sweeping is not the right <laughs> No, I, it, it was a sweep. So I have, I have the four um, Best Musical and Best Play, how many awards mm-hmm. they were up for in one. So the big musical this year was Cabaret, which had 11 nominations, and it won eight of them. The Apple Tree and I Do, I Do both had seven nominations, and both won one apiece. And Walking Happy had six nominations and one win. And then for the plays, The Homecoming, six nominations, four wins. 
A Delicate Balance, five nominations and one win. Black Comedy, three nominations and zero wins. And The Killing of Sister George, three noms, one win. Huh. So... So I guess I was correct in saying (laughs) that Cabaret did, in fact, sweep. And I mean, looking at the other shows, like, I don't think any of the shows this season were that terrible, but, like, they're all very flimsy. None of them really have the depth or complexity of Cabaret, which is probably why, like, you don't really see any of them anymore. No. You know, going back and reading about these productions and listening to the recordings, there's you know, nothing wrong with these shows, but I think that there is a reason why they've kind of been forgotten. So I guess we can just jump right into it because the opening number to the Tonys is the opening number to Cabaret. Um, Yeah, which I think is kind of an excellent little thing that they did. I know, it's perfect. It really is like, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it seems just like a a song that is tailor-made to just, like, open whatever you want. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you can just kind of put it anywhere. You can put it in, like, your cabaret you're performing, like, your amateur cabaret. Because it's still like, hey, like, welcome to the show. Yeah. And now it's like, welcome to the Tonys. Welcome and bienvenue. I think as an opening number in this original production, I think something that I was surprised to learn about it is that there is no curtain, which at that time I think is kind of seen as this, you know, wild and crazy Brechtian thing. Um, And rather than having a curtain, there's literally a mirror that is reflecting the image of the audience back onto themselves. So, you know, you're getting into the orchestra, settling into your seats, and you're sitting down and you're literally seeing a reflection of yourself, which, you know, I think that um, kind of speaks to Cabaret as a whole. I think that there are a lot of really interesting, subtle things about the show in this original incarnation, which I think we both kind of have, you know, upon further learning further about it, it does seem kind of flawed. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the version of it that I'm the least familiar with. So it's been interesting, like learning more about it for this episode. Something that we saw, like looking in um, Boris Aronson, Boris Aronson's book, who was the um, original set designer is that Hal Prince uh, was talking about how, like, if he had done Cabaret even a few years later, he would have been, like, much less literal with the sets. Like, even though it does have sort of unusual elements to it, like the mirror and, like, no Mm -hmm. curtains, there still are, like, a lot of literal set pieces that, like, even a few years later doing Company, like, which has a much less literal set. It had all the scaffolding and the elevators, and the physical space was much more abstract. And Cabaret is kind of the midway point between totally literal Broadway scenery like you'd be used to and something like Company. I guess we kind of do... I mean, maybe we should... I guess it's assumed that anyone listening to this probably knows the basics about Cabaret, but... Just in case you don't, the music and lyrics are by Kander and Ebb. Um, the book is by Joe Mastroff. It's based on a play called I Am a Camera, which is adapted by um, Christo- adapted from Christopher Isherwood's short stories. And it's set in early 1930s Berlin and during like the rise of 
the Nazis and it's about, you know, various people living in Berlin and kind of centered around this club called the Kit Kat Club and the people who work there and attend it. I guess the plot is focused on these two couples, one who I guess are more the main vehicle, especially by the later versions. I think that neither of us have read the book for this original um, uh, 1966-1967 season production, but I think that the secondary couple kind of has equal, the both of the couples kind of have equal footing in this version, but as productions and as the movie kind of developed it, um, it's kind of focused on this uh, British cabaret singer who kind of has a residency at the Kit Club, club Kit Kat Club named um, Sally Bowles. It really Bowles. is a tongue twister. <laughs> Sally Bowles and um, this American writer, Cliff, who um, is traveling through Europe and they kind of have a um, tumultuous love affair and that is kind of set right next to a love affair between the woman who kind of runs the boarding house connected to the Kit Kat Club, Frau... Fräulein Schneider? Yeah, Fräulein yeah. Schneider, who's a German woman, and Herr Schultz, who is her um, Jewish suitor. So, you know, this theme of the rise of Nazism kind of is brought to the forefront of that and is kind of juxtaposed with um, Sally and Cliff's relationship where, you know, Sally is a libertine who is not really observing the world around her as things kind of fall into hell and Cliff eventually having to save himself and leave. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's really the biggest difference between, besides the, the design elements between this original version and the later ones, is that it becomes very unbalanced in favor of Sally kind of becoming the main character. Like in this version, um, Lada Lenya, who plays Fraulein Schneider, is nominated for Best Lead Actress, which mm -hmm. doesn't happen in any other versions. Um, Jill Hayworth was not nominated at all, and I didn't realize this until we watched, to add insult to injury, she's like the Tony Stewart, like she and Lynn Redgrave are mm -hmm. giving the people the Tonys. So um, it's like, not only were you not nominated, you just have to like stand up here and hand them to the people who win. Yeah, and I would argue that, you know, this was really her only vehicle that she's ever gotten yeah um, this was her first and only broadway appearance but the the new york times review i hadn't i hadn't read it until we were doing the research it is structured around them bashing her like it starts with them being like cabaret is perfect except for one thing and then they like say everything that's perfect and at the end it's like hold on let me let me pull it up to get some some quotes about how much they hated her in this yeah um which i think is like you know i didn't see it I think she does a fine job on the recording. You know, this is actually the recording of Cabaret that I grew up with. And, you know, Joel Gray's performance is iconic. He, um, you know, reprised it for the movie version. It is kind of definitely, he's very impish and I would say less sexy than his counterpart, Alan Cumming, who I guess played the role of master of ceremonies in other productions. I guess kind of going back to the plot too, so you have these two storylines, but as Anna had mentioned earlier, the play is kind of presented as a cabaret show. So you're kind of having these little vignettes and little stories that are coming through and are weaving, um, cabaret numbers are woven in between, and you have this master of ceremonies who is kind of conducting the business of the night. Joel Gray did win um, Best Actor for his portrayal. Um, okay, so I have this. This is um, Walter Kerr's 
uh, original review of Cabaret. <clears throat> so he says, Producer-director Harold Prince, in a totally uncharacteristic lapse of judgment, has miscast a pretty but essentially flavorless ingenue, Jill Hayworth, in the role. Miss Hayworth has certain skills and may be able to use them in other ways. Wrapped like a snowball in white fur and sporting that pancake tam that girls of the 20s used to wear whenever they were going to be photographed having snowball fights, she succeeds at some angles in looking astonishingly like Clara Bow, but her usefulness to this particular project ends there. She is trim but neutral, a profile rather than a person, and gives the difficult and given the difficult things Cabaret is trying to do, she is a damaging presence worth no more to the show than her weight in mascara. Ouch. <laughs> I know. That's brutal. So, like, when they cast Liza in the movie, that obviously really changed sort of the profile of the character. Like, she becomes a, like, a very talented torch singer who is, her tragedy is that she's, like, she will never be discovered and she's stuck there rather than someone who is kind of a mediocre talent but is kind of just getting by on the skin of her teeth and her charm and, like, being in a place where there isn't really much competition. So one other thing before we talk about the actual performance is that, so you mentioned that Joel Grey wins the Tony and he also won the Oscar. There are only nine actors who have won the Tony and the Oscar for playing the same role. And some of the others are Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady, Yul Brynner for The King and I, um, and Anne Bancroft for The Miracle Worker. And the only one that was not, you know, in the 60s through the 80s was Viola Davis, who just won for Fences. Because now it's very unusual if you're going to adapt a play or a musical. Either, you know, you're going to recast it with stars or um, it's just not very good, like yeah. Rent. <laughs> it's not up for Oscar contention. So the this performance, I had never watched this clip. And a couple of things that I thought were interesting about it. Number one... I really liked that a lot of the Kit Kat girls had actual, like, cat stuff on their costumes. Mm -hmm. Like, one of them was wearing, like, a cat headpiece. I thought that was very cute. And I also liked that they had, and I don't think they do this in other versions, where they had other parts of the Kit Kat Club come out. Like, they had the waiters come out. They had those guys with the scary masks. You really got a sense of sort of what other entertainment was happening at the Kit Kat Club besides these, like, chorus girls. Yeah. I think it presents, like, a really different version of the show than I kind of have, have had in my head or have seen. It's so colorful is yeah, another yeah. thing. You know, everyone kind of looks like a marionette puppet, especially <laughs> Joel Grey. It, like, looks like he literally, like, he's you like, know. He's like a little imp. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the funny thing about this um, clip and watching it on YouTube is that... Um, you know, this is like early color television. And I think especially when Joel, uh, when Jill Hayworth is um, present, you know, walking back and forth presenting awards, she really blends in with the curtain. <laughs> well, something I liked about whoever put this on YouTube was that they like, when it was time for the performances, they cut in like better quality. Oh, really? Yeah, because those had time code on them and they were like much clearer than. Uh -huh. So I don't know where they were from. I don't know where any of these are from because they predate VCRs. So I don't know, I don't know where these uh, ceremonies are from and who captured them initially, but thank you. Oh, the first time that I ever watched this clip was actually, um, I think PBS put out this DVD series called Broadway's Lost Treasures, you know, sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s. For me, you know, before growing up, not having the opportunity to grow up with YouTube, you know, that was how I watched a lot of these Tony clips. 
That might be what they're yeah. from in this situation. It's very fitting that that's how like this first national broadcast kicks off with something so iconic and also something that's like, welcome. Welcome mm-hmm. to Broadway. I think the one last thing that I do want to um, add about Cabaret is that I was always struck by the fact that the Kit Kat Club is spelled with K, so K, K, K. And I kind of was like, what's that about? I did find someone writing um, saying that, you know, Hal Prince, who was very politically minded, kind of saw this as an opportunity to talk about the civil rights battles that were going on in America at the time, the fight for civil rights. You know, while they're not beating you over the head with the parallels between, you know, the rise of Nazism and fascism in Germany in the 1930s and the contemporary issues of the time. The show was really socially minded in a way that was bringing attention to these civil rights issues that were present in American society at the time. And I think that that is easy to kind of not recognize or realize that because in the subsequent productions, I think, concentrated more on gender and sexuality than racism and yeah well and but the nazi stuff got a lot more literal also like Mm -hmm. the way that the revival ended with the mc like wearing uh you know concentration camp uniform yeah that's a good point though and i think that's why this one has and not just because it has like a you know a great score and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff that's really why this one has stuck around and the others from this year are kind of like trifles yeah yeah So this year was hosted by Mary Martin and Robert Preston, which starts something that I feel like only the Tonys do, which is where they'll have people who are currently starring in a show also host it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, not only do you have to do this show eight times a week and perform on the Tonys, you also have to host it. Yeah. It's like, dance, dance for us. There is on Broadway a lady so gifted and so talented that she has won three Tony Awards for Peter Pan, for South Pacific, and for The Sound of Music. Your hostess for this evening, the co-star of I Do, I Do, the magnificent Mary Martin. In the past few months, I have grown to know and love that music man because on the other six nights of the week, he plays my husband, my Michael, to whom I say I do, and I really do. May I present your host for the evening, Robert Preston. I mean, do we want to jump around? They don't really perform until later, but do we want to talk about I Do, I Do now? Yeah, let's talk about I Do, I Do. Let's talk about it. I Do, I Do. I Do, I Do. That's how it's punctuated. So it's got book and lyrics by Tom Jones. Uh, Not Sex Bomb Tom Jones, but the one who wrote The Fantastics. And music by Harvey Schmidt. And it's based on a play called The Four Poster. And it's a two-character story, which spans the years from 1895 to 1945, which really tells you where the sensibility (laughs) lies, that it literally starts in the 1800s. Um, And it's just about, you know, a married couple starting from their wedding night to to question mark, I guess, 50 years into their marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just kind of... 
it's like a good showcase for both of them. I don't know. Yeah. What, what did you think about it? Um, I was not surprised by anything about it. <laughs> um, I wasn't really familiar with the show. I think that I've heard the title before because it's kind of, the title is probably the most remarkable thing about it. That has got two exclamation points. Yeah, exactly. Oklahoma um, could never. <laughs> I don't think that it was very good. There is a song called Good Night towards the beginning where Mary Martin's character, she is very scared to have sex for the first time I on know, their wedding I, night. I know, I kind of thought that was fun that they, <laughs> that she was like, I've never seen a naked man before. <laughs> um, and yeah, and she keeps asking him if he's ever seen a naked woman before. I guess it might be kind of fun. <laughs> I mean... That, I think that's just a show that's, like, you know, going to ride on the, the charms of the performers, and those are two yeah. legendary Broadway people. It's kind of like company for Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> um. I was kind of thinking it's a little bit like the last five years, because <laughs> it actually, when I was reading... The synopsis, there's a part where it's like, Michael has become very self-involved and self-important about his work and success as a novelist. He corrects her grammar, criticizes her cooking and habitual lateness, insisting that she accompany him to literary parties at which she feels uncomfortable. That's like literally part of the last five years. The other interesting thing about this show, it's had some fun replacements. Carol Burnett and Rock Hudson did it on tour. There was almost a movie adaptation starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, but it was scrapped because um, the late 60s were not a good time for movie musicals and they were losing a lot of money. Yeah, and I think it raises this question of like, why would you ever have a musical with two people in it? You don't like a, you don't like a good two-person musical? Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Even though I think that there are musicals where there essentially are only two people in it, um, or two people that I care about, I think you kind (laughs) of do need some other people. You know, like, I really want to see a crazy spinster aunt who moves in with them and kind of stirs the pot. But on the other hand, if you're going to go see, like, two legends, don't you want them to just be doing everything the whole time? Yeah, I guess that's actually true. And, you know, looking back to the press of the time, that's what people are saying. It's like, Come see these two legends slay. The New York Times review, I'm not going to read most of it, but I do like that Walter Kerr describes Mary Martin's voice as red wine at room temperature, which (laughs) I think is very accurate. A pair of socks does not represent the end of the civilized world. Actually, a really funny news item I found from the out-of-town tryout. The headline reads, I do, I do, halted by injury. (laughs) The injury was Miss Martin stubbed her toe and is being treated for a fracture at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, So there was some out-of-town drama. Mm, (laughs) She's a real drama queen. Nobody's perfect, Maybe we should talk about how all of the acceptance speeches are like three sentences long. Yeah, that was really weird. I think the first one... It was Ian Holm. That was cute. I know. I like. I feel like, and I think we're going to see this as it goes on, I feel like British people give the best Tony speeches. Like, they usually keep it... Like, since this was the first one, I was like, oh, like, he kept it so short and sweet. And then I was like, oh, that's just what everyone's doing. Yeah, and he kind of, like, added, like, a really cute element to it. He is, like... Hello. Um, I'm taking two people home from America with me. This 
Tony Award and my new son, Barnaby. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this means that I can take home to England with me two very valuable objects from the United States. One brand new all-American son, Barnaby, born February the 20th, New York City, 1967. And now, one brand new all-American award, Tony, born 26th of March, 1967. Thank you. Yes, I loved that. And Marion Seldes won Best Supporting Actress in a Play. And I don't remember what her speech was, but the note that I made was her speech is so sweet and simple. I have the prize. Because Edward Albee wrote that part. Thank you. So next up, we have The Apple Tree. That was the next performance, Mm -hmm. even though we're skipping around. Which, honestly, was kind of insane. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes, she's doing a crazy character voice in the first part of that. She's playing like a crazy chimney sweep by... Who has like... Uh, you know, nasal, nasal problems. Not warm and cozy or not, I would give up the luck if I could only be a movie star. Which, which, I mean, I guess they do reference it in the lyrics where she's like, my nose isn't stuffed up anymore. It's kind of interesting because I don't know that much about this show. Um, I think the same people who wrote uh, Fiddler wrote this. Yeah, and and She Loves Me, which are two masterpieces. And this one is kind of a more minor work by them. So I guess we should introduce it. So it's Bach and Harnick, music and lyrics. Um, and they also wrote the book. And it's three different mini plays. The first one is based on Mark Twain's The Diaries of Adam and Eve. The second is based on Frank Stockton's The Lady or the Tiger. And the third is based on Jules Pfeiffer's Passionella, which is what that performance was from. Oh, okay. So, and it was starring um, Barbara Harris, Larry Blyden, and Alan Alda. And I was sad that we didn't get to see any Alan Alda because he yeah. was, he's, uh, he's got a pretty good voice. He sounded good on the cast recording. Mm-hmm. Don't really see him in a lot of musicals these days. It is a weird one. Yeah, it is like the type of show that even just watching like a five minute segment from you can tell that it has a lot of problems <laughs> <laughs> well well yeah it you know in some ways it's kind of like a weirder i do i do like i feel like it kind of deals with similar like the songs were sort of similar they just dealt with the uh, you know heterosexuality yeah <laughs> i think that the funny thing though is that while I don't like I Do, I Do, the song that they perform, um, Nobody's Perfect, has been stuck in my head for months. <laughs> I thought, I liked their performance. I yeah. thought it was good. I, I mean, I thought that was definitely the right choice to perform. It's like a fun little, a little showcase for both of them. Um, I don't know, Barbara Harris is really very cute, and this is one that has not been, it, it well, it was revived once um, with Kristen Chenoweth, who, like, really is sort of the only person I could envision. Like, mm-hmm. watching it, I was like, this... Even though Kristen Chenoweth was not born... Maybe... She, I don't know how old she is. She was probably she was born. She was probably born in 1968, but this, like, seems like it was written for her. Mm-hmm. Not to detract from Barbara Harris, because she was great, and she won a Tony for it. And recently passed away. Yes. A couple of months ago. Rest in Very power, sad. <laughs> <laughs> She She's kind of had an interesting career. Like, she really 
I don't think she's really known anymore. To be perfectly honest, I don't know that much about her. No, me neither. She, like, she's been in some stuff with some pretty crazy names. Her first film was something called A Thousand Clowns. Then she was in something called, which was also a play called, Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad. Then she was in something called, Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? (laughs) Um... But she was also in uh, Nashville. She was in the uh-huh. she was in Freaky Friday um, with Jodie Foster. Um, oh, so she was the mom in Freaky Friday. Oh. I've never seen that that version of oh, it. Oh, I definitely had seen that version on the Disney Channel um, growing up because I was raised by the TV. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely she stopped acting in the late eighties though, so I guess that's probably why we don't really know her. Although you like. Uh, we both like older movies, but you're definitely, you have more of an encyclopedic knowledge of, yeah. of film. Well, when you said that she was in some movies with some crazy names, I thought <laughs> that she was like in movies with big stars. Oh, well, well, actually, who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me did have, did star Dustin Hoffman. Oh. And she was nominated for uh, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for that. Well, She's been nominated that? for a bunch of like Golden Globes and stuff. Yeah, you know, I think she did okay for herself. Yeah, she got a nice obit in the time, so. Uh, but you know what was crazy is when she came up to accept her award, it was like someone had hit her with a tranquilizer dart. Woods, they love him. Thank you. Uh, thank Mike Nichols, Sheldon Harness, Jerry Bach. Uh, hello. Hello. Uh, I'm shy. I'm just... Okay. Uh, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's lovely. Thank you. And I know it kind of reminded me of when I, um, like, I bought Parker Posey's audiobook because I was uh-huh. like, it's going to be fun to hear her read it. And she also gives, like, a very, very, very low-energy performance. And it's like, I know you shouldn't equate people with the characters they play. Uh-huh. And maybe being someone who does these, like, crazy roles means you feel like you have to overcompensate by being really low-key in real life. But uh-huh. it's like... Give, give me a little something. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, it's making me a little uncomfortable. No one One of the interesting things that I found while watching this after having watched like a bunch of more recent ones was that like a lot of the, they still use like the same music to play people out and like when they win. And one of the really shady things that they do is when they're bringing out an older actress, they'll play Younger Than Springtime by South Pacific, which not by, <laughs> from South Pacific, which they did for Lauren Bacall, which is rude, I think. Um, that is actually <laughs> very rude. Yeah, I did notice that they were playing um, tunes from past and present. The one that they always do when they're doing like, they're bringing up kind of like an ingenue, like especially someone who isn't necessarily known for Broadway and like doesn't have some song associated with them is they'll play Lovely from Forum and like here's a hot lady (laughs) oh my god that's actually very interesting so something to look out for and when they when they brought out lee remick they played anyone can whistle which is like a nice little acknowledgement yeah acknowledgement to the famous flop that she performed in four years earlier five years earlier yeah it was pretty it was not that long ago Mm -hmm. so i guess that song has 
like kind of had a life. I mean, it definitely has now, but Sondheim wasn't really Sondheim then. Because Company was 1970, which was his real breakout as mm-hmm. music and lyrics. But I guess it is kind of interesting to think of Forum, because I think that Vilkamin does pay homage to this kind of setup of an opening number that maybe, you know, we can think a com- comedy, comedy tonight. tonight for. Yeah, I, I think uh, Forum is like a very underrated score of his. I like when he is still sort of composing in kind of like a golden age mode and he isn't as like avant-garde as he eventually becomes because it's like it's still very interesting and unique but it's also a little more easy listening than than Mm -hmm. he eventually becomes yeah and i also think that well i guess we don't have to get on this whole sondheim (laughs) tangent but you know listening to something like i do i do I do, I do, is that the lyrics <laughs> you, suck. You have to yell it. You have to yell, I do, I do. <laughs> the lyrics are just so yes, painfully... very pedestrian. Yeah. So so there's that. So Lauren McCall comes on. Oh, that's when she kind of delivers this line that I loved. <laughs> Before everyone makes too many speeches about all the hard work that is involved in the theater, I just want to say it's also a great deal of fun. Which... Um, I agree with. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a nice sentiment. I also think that she's kind of in this category of... So she was in a play that season that was not nominated. What was she in? Um, I don't know. They mentioned it. Um, I should have... Oh, you're right. You're right. What was it? So I'm imagining that she was probably excellent in it, but it was not very good. Because she later um, was in applause, right? Right. Playing uh, the Betty Davis, Margot Channing role. Yes, and just kind of barking her way through those very, very low, low notes. So then David Merritt comes out, and he gives like an incredibly stilted speech. I'm, uh, I'm told that uh, we have an, an inordinately large television viewing audience watching us tonight. And I want to congratulate that audience for watching us and not watching Bonanza. <laughs> I want to warmly applaud American Airlines for their foresighted cultural interest in making this program tonight possible. But it's interesting that American Airlines has really been sort of a supporter of the theater for so long, because like one of, isn't one of Roundabout's theaters? Yeah, the American American Airlines Airlines Theater. So it really has like a long, a long history of, uh, of that partnership. Um, so actually, this will be something that we get into next episode, but um, The Cactus Flower, the play that Miss Bacall was in, uh, um, opened um, in the season prior to this one. I like that you were respectfully referring to her as Miss Bacall, <laughs> which we have not done for any other, <laughs> any other person that we've referenced. Well, that's the other thing I was thinking about, which is not something uh, I looked up beforehand because it seems confusing and I also don't really care. But um, the, these Tonys were in March, so it's like, when is the cutoff for the season? Yeah, that's interesting, because the cutoff now is end of April, May. May. Yeah, it's something like that, and then the Tonys are over the summer, and yeah. then the new season starts in the fall. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a question. You know, if anyone has any corrections to provide us, um, any um, answers to questions that we pose um please feel free to reach out my little tony's podcast at gmail.com is where you would send that 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we're definitely trying to do research and not kind of be like, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Like, I don't know who that person is, but like, obviously this is not our job. Like we're doing this for fun and there are going to be, uh, there are going to be things we don't know. So this telecast, they like, they don't broadcast all the awards and they don't mention the other ones at all. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't do best score on TV. They didn't do like best director in a play and they weren't even like, Earlier tonight, you know, blah, 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 won this. They just are like, we don't care. Plays basically get no showcase, which is something that the Tonys have struggled with forever. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Like how to, how to show them, because you can't really... It's not as easy as just isolating a musical number, yeah. which arguably isn't really a great way to showcase a musical either, like just showing one song out of context. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think that the best that I've seen it done um, was a few years ago when the actual playwright kind of came and had, you know, 60, 90 seconds to kind of talk about their work. Right. Um, That was pretty interesting. But then again, it doesn't highlight anyone who's actually in the play. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then it's like, sometimes there was one year where they did like, sometimes they'll do montages where it's like, people saying lines that are sort of similar from different plays, kind of just like quick cutting. Mm -hmm. And it's, you don't really, all you really know is like who was in the place. You don't really get anything else. So if you win best musical, the award goes to um, the producer of the show. Yeah. But I wonder with best play, if that is the same. No. Well, I usually see the playwright accepted. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, and this year for Best Musical, it feels, I think the writers accepted it. The writers accepted it? Huh. I don't know. I, it, was, it wasn't super clear. Yeah. The, the image on the TV, it was, you know, it was like four white men. It, it really could have been anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they were just random people. Um, so now we have our last performance, which is Walking Happy, performing the title song. I had never, this was the only musical I had never heard of. Yeah, I agree. I had not heard of it. And just to be clear and fair, I thought that the Golden Apple and the Apple Tree were the same show (laughs) for the past um, 20 years. It's confusing. The only part of the Apple Tree I knew already was the Adam and Eve stuff, but I hadn't heard anything else. But yeah, we both didn't know anything about this show. My impressions of it, it's... A little unremarkable. <laughs> Let me just read. I have the the part about it in Not Since Carrie uh, bookmarked, which I think is a good um, a good sort of summary of what happened. But actually, the interesting thing was that it was originally supposed to be adapted for Mary Martin, and she pulled out, saying it was scheduling difficulties. But uh, Ken Mandelbaum suggests that it was not just that. Like, she maybe had some other objection with it or was, like, trying to get out. So he says... Walking Happy is another one of those shows that demonstrate the fine line between flop and hit. The book stayed close to the original play, except for the scenes at a pub which were added to give George Rose, as Hobson, the opportunity to sing some unnecessary songs. Khan's lyrics were not always felicitous, and Walking Happy needed a better score to equal the level of its book, choreography, and the performances of Wisdom and Troy. Still, there have been hits with worse scores, such as Applause, and Walking Happy was a decently entertaining, conventional show that had the misfortune to open at the same time as three superior and more inventive musicals, Cabaret, I Do, I Do, with the elusive Mary Martin and the Apple Tree, arrived on Broadway. Had Martin actually been willing to do Walking Happy after Dolly, it might have been a solid hit. And as the original play had always been more popular in England, it is likely that the musical, with British favorite wisdom, would have fared better in London, where it would have been vastly superior to most homegrown musicals of the 60s. 
So that sort of seems to be the theme in a lot of what I have read about this show, which is that it's based on a British play, but it never made it to Britain. And it probably would have been something that did better over there because there is like a difference in British and American sensibilities. Yeah, I totally can see that. And, you know, just listening to it and reading the synopsis, um, it does kind of feel like similar to these shows, you know, that kind of take place in this pre-turn of the 20th century, early 20th century, like Hello, Dolly, that I think having an American context, like, makes it easier to kind of jump into. You know, it feels not American. And there's nothing wrong with a show <laughs> not being American. I just think that Broadway at this... And obviously, you know, Cabaret wasn't necessarily American. I just think that this kind of kitchen sink drama aspect to it doesn't seem to necessarily lend itself to an American sensibility at the time. I didn't think the Tony number was that bad. It had a lot of fun walking. Yeah, um, it really made use of the fun walk that um, <laughs> if you saw the most recent revival of Hello, Dolly. Yes, I was like, this is like put on your Sunday clothes, but yeah. just about walking. Plot-wise, it's kind of like, you know, this guy wants to marry his kids off, and there's another guy with... he. The one guy has daughters, the other guy has sons. One of the daughters is too old to get married, so she's told, but she falls in love with someone who's already engaged. It's, you know, really textbook theater. <laughs> something that is interesting about this, though, is that it seems like it would be prime for something like um, Encores, but Encores has never revived it. It's never been revived it's like totally it's totally dead remind me who wrote it and oh you know i did read about the guy who wrote the music and he actually won four academy awards for the best song what i think so three or four jimmy van Hoosen. oh yeah wow oh but this was all like in the 40s through the 60s oh he wrote thoroughly modern millie the song yeah so he won for Swinging on a Star, All the Way, High Hopes, and Call Me Irresponsible. Yeah, I guess four movies that also have not withstood the test of time. Oh, th- those were the names of the songs, uh, but it's like, who who yeah. even knows? <laughs> the, na- the names of the movies were Going My Way, The Joker is Wild, A Hole in the Head, and Papa's Delicate Condition. <laughs> four, four classics that have stood the test of time. Yes, Sorry to be so ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> they did not win anything. No, wait. Did I say? No, it said one win. What did they win? No, I was wrong. Maybe, they, I don't think they won anything. Well, they didn't win any of the major awards. No, so it doesn't matter. And well, see. So there were two other musicals that season that got nominated for a couple that I guess we should just mention briefly, but we didn't really do any research on these. Mm-hmm. So one of them was called A Joyful Noise, and it was 
about a fiddler who arrives in a small southern town and shocks the stern community with his exuberant love of hillbilly music and life in general. <laughs> so, and that got nominated for three Tonys, two for Best Featured Actress, and it was Michael Bennett's first show as a choreographer, so he got nominated for choreography. Oh, so that's the real, yeah. Yeah, that is the kind of notable thing about that. And then there was another one called A Hand is on the Gate, which was nominated, got one nomination for... Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress, and it's a cast of eight reads writings by African-American authors and performs traditional African-American songs. So I was like, there's really nothing online about A Hand is on the Gate. They made, they made a cast album, but it's only on vinyl, and it never, <laughs> it never made it to CD. But the funny thing about that is I like went on YouTube to try to look it up, uh-huh. and I discovered that there is an account that I think is like a bot that just automates, like auto-reads, that has a robot reading Wikipedia uh-huh. pages with like randomly generated um, pictures. Yeah. So the one for a hand is on the gate is them reading like the three-line Wikipedia page with like random pictures of gates. Um, that sounds very spooky, and I think <laughs> that we should post that link for our listeners. Okay, in case you want to learn about learn very little about A Hand is on the Gate and look at some weird pictures of gates. Thank you, uh, YouTube bots, for that. And something else to note about this season um, is that the most anticipated show of this season and the show that had the biggest pre-sale numbers never actually made it out of previews. And this show um, is famously The Breakfast at Tiffany's musical, Holly Go Lightly, starring Mary Tyler Moore, which I don't know. I've never heard. No, you know, me neither. Is that... Are there, like, bootlegs circulating? That's I feel a, like the music is kind of, like, a cult. I feel like I hear people talking about it. Yeah, and I think for a long time, I'm not entirely sure of the status. I think that I can, kind of confused its status with the Lolita yeah. Um, yeah. status, which um, we'll get into on yeah, a later I, episode. I can't wait to talk about that. You know what? I really, you know, I know nothing about this show besides the little I do know. I don't, I mean, I don't know anything <laughs> about the content of the show, but... Something that I really appreciate about it is that it kind of harkens back to the actual Capote story that, you know, the movie kind of ruined and made into a bad rom-com. Right, like very sort of candy-coated. Yeah. And because... like beautiful Audrey Hepburn and, mm-hmm. you know, very stylish and and can never be degraded. Yeah, and I think that in uh, the Mendelbaum, Not Since Carrie book, You know, he kind of makes this point that, you know, it didn't have a happy ending. You know, it kind of went back to this mood piece. It wasn't, like, so centered on this hetero romance. I just want to note that we both brought our own copies of Not Since Carrie (laughs) to this recording session. That's what we're working with here. Yeah. So here's what happened. Prior to closing, a live recording was made of the musical numbers, which was eventually released on an LP. And then they did a studio recording in 2001 with Faith Prince as Holly Golightly. So it does have, it has become kind of a cult musical, but I've never, I've never listened to it. I'm reading in the Not Since Carrie that people were leaving in droves um, (laughs) before the show actually ended. And there was a semi-review given saying that the audience left uh, the theater immeasurably depressed. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Um, So... Yeah, that is not good. No. So, yeah, so then we have Carol Burnett uh, giving Best Director to Hal Prince. Come get it, Hal. What else? And then we had Barbara 
uh, opening Best Musical and saying she's going to break her nails, opening the envelope. Going to break my nails. Uh, classic Barbara. Um, that's it. It was a pretty, it's a short and sweet. It was only 63 minute ceremony, yeah. which I think is like the shortest. I looked at the next one, it was like an hour 40. So, oh, that's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. So, I guess they were like, you know, wham bam, get it done. We didn't really talk about the plays at all, but yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. That's not really what this is about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. they didn't talk about the plays at all on the, on the telecast. So, we will not talk about them at all here. But, except to say, it's a pretty stacked year. Pretty much everything is still yeah, uh, in the modern lexicon of yeah, theater. Yeah, for sure. Like you have you got a Pinter, you got uh Edward Albee, you have The Killing of Sister George, which is like a cult classic. Yeah, and I think the one thing I do need to say about the plays <laughs> is that um if you don't know about The Killing of Sister George, I urge you to read it or better yet um, see the mood movie that is starring um, the sister George um, that was Aunt Beryl Reed, I believe her name is. Tony Award winner. Tony Award winning Beryl Reed do this performance on film. It's about, you know, it's this kind of like strange lesbian romance revenge movie. Um, it was directed by Robert Aldridge, who um, I'm sure all of our fans know directed <laughs> Whatever Happened to Baby Jane a few years prior. But it's about this aging lesbian um, radio personality who kind of, I guess she's in a soap opera, but she kind of has like a Mr. Jo- I mean, uh, Mr. Rogers feel to her. But her character is being killed off and she kind of goes on this crazy rampage. Yeah, I, uh, I want to watch it. I meant to watch it before this and then totally forgot about it because I wasn't even thinking about the plays. The one other thing, speaking of directors, that we didn't talk about, we don't really need to talk about it, but I just want to mm-hmm. note it, that Mike Nichols directed The Apple Tree. Oh, really? Which, yeah, which is uh, which is very fun. That was a really stacked category. It was Hal Prince, Scour Champion, Mike Nichols, and Jack Sidow. I don't know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> but, is this Hal Prince's first Tony? No, I don't think first so. First as a director, maybe. Oh, maybe. Yeah, it was his best for directing, but he already had four before for producing um we will get into his famous feud in a later episode with steven sondheim um his famous feud with sondheim yeah like merrily roll on here oh okay yeah i feel like they keep it they kept it pretty low profile that they were feuding oh (laughs) i don't know yeah i don't know either. i think it was just kind of like they had that bad experience and then they didn't work together anymore yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right well i think I think that's it. So uh, if you liked this, and I'm sure you did, um, you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. Um, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonies. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. But only say nice things. Yeah, only say nice things. Oh, um, also, I guess we didn't mention this. We're not going to be going chronologically through the Tonys. We're kind of just going to be jumping around. Our first couple, we are going to pick, and then after that, we're just going to do it randomly. The 1998 Tony Awards are going to be the next one, which has uh, Ragtime and The Lion King and the Cabaret Revival, etc. Yes. So... Tune in next time for that. Uh, review us on iTunes, because yeah. I guess we're going to be on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, review us on iTunes. Uh, but again, only nice things. Yeah. Um, if you have anything mean to say or any criticisms of us... Um, Just write it on a piece of paper. 
yeah. and burn it. And then tell your priest <laughs> <laughs> that you thought mean things about very nice people. <laughs> yes. Uh, don't make it our problem. Yeah. All right. See you next time. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Airline, the airline built for professional travelers.